It's More Money with leading economist Steve Moore. Stephen Moore is with us, economist. With more than 30 years experience as an economist and as a leading thinker of government on business, showing deep understanding of the shifts in the global economy. He's leading economist Steve Moore with More Money on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's your host, Steve Moore. Welcome, folks. This is the More Money Show on WBC Talk Radio. I am with you on the More Money Show every Saturday afternoon from 1 to 2 p.m. So thank you so much for listening. And I have some exciting news that in the, in the weeks to come, we'll be expanding the More Money Show. So it will be a two-hour show. I'm, I'll be able to have more guests and take a lot more of your questions because that's always the... Um, the real fun part of the show for me is to listen to you. So uh, more to come with that, but I think it will happen in the next few weeks and I'm excited. And by the way, it's because you listen to this show that uh, my good friend, John Katsimatidis, the owner of WABC, has extended our show for another hour because we have good ratings and it's because people like you listen. So uh, I am saluting you all for caring uh, so much of your country and, you know, to become informed, become a smart voter. And that's what we are here for. We're Freedom of Speech Radio. We like to hear from people of all different uh, political perspectives. Now, look, I'm a conservative. I'm a free market guy. I'm a Trump guy. But I love to hear from people who maybe disagree with me. That's what makes this country great. We can disagree without being disagreeable. Uh, so great show today. I want, I've want i got two great guests coming on, uh, including the great Arthur Laffer, the outstanding economist who really has shaped the presidencies of, of Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. So I'm going to talk to him about the economy. But I want to just start off by talking about a few things that are going on in the economy right now. And let's start, talk about inflation. And this idea that somehow this is a strong economy, I don't get it. I know the New York Times says that. I know the Washington Post says that. I know the White House says it. But I'm going to give you these latest statistics because I'm with the 67% of Americans who think the economy is way, way below where it should be. And here are the numbers. These are the inflation rates. Now, I know the official inflation rate is 18% for all uh, goods and services that we buy. That's the consumer price index. That's a terrible number, by the way. That's a awful number. But what I'm here to tell you is that the numbers are actually worse than that when you look at the things that you have to buy. So let me give you some examples. Let's look at rent. Rent is not up 18%. Rent is up tw uh, 20%. That's a lot in three years. Here's another one. Groceries. Groceries are not up 18%. They're up 22%. <laughs> That's a lot of inflation. How many of you have seen your paycheck increase by 22%? I haven't. Here's another one. Uh, let's look at energy costs. Those are up. Uh, those are like your utility bill. Those are up 32%. Hmm. How about this one? Gasoline up 36% since uh, Trump left office. And then this is the most amazing one, mortgage payments. If you buy a median value home, you want to become a homeowner and you take out a 30-year mortgage, your mortgage rate, which was roughly $1,900 a month when Trump left office, is now closer to $3,600 a month. 
that's a that's a more than 67% increase. I don't know if the CPI is taking account of these numbers, but they're much, much higher than is being officially um, announced. Now, there was a big story, and you probably heard of this by now, but the the CEO of Kellogg's, the, the cereal maker, was made an announcement this week that if you're having a hard time paying for your grocery bills and putting food on the table for your family, the, the CEO of Kellogg said, hey, I've got an idea. Ha- serves cereal for dinner. Cereal for dinner. Now, you know, he sells cereal, so he's trying to get people to buy more cereal. And I don't think he was trying to be offensive, but it is kind of offensive to say, oh, you're not, you can't have hamburger, you can't have a steak, you can't have chicken, uh, you can't have meat or pasta, uh, you, you can't have a hot meal. You're going you're gonna to serve your family cereal for dinner? Now, I am old enough that my parents grew up in the, in the de- Great Depression. And it was very informative to me to talk to my parents because they taught me you're going to eat every single bite of food on your plate. (laughs) They were militant about that, folks, because they lived through the Great Depression. They lived through times when there were food shortages, when people were going hungry in this great country of ours. And I remember my mom and dad saying, you know, during the worst parts of the Depression, and they weren't especially poor either. Uh, that there were times when, uh, you know, they would have cereal for dinner. And there were times even, you know, when times got really tough that they'd basically eat what we now serve as dog food to people to to stay nourished. And so what I'm saying is, I don't know about you, but I find that to be a real um, indictment of this U.S. economy when we have CEOs of companies saying, eat cereal for dinner. I mean, come on, we can do much better than that as a country. And if we get Trump back into office, I think we'll get inflation back down to what it was before Biden came in. And those rates of inflation were 2%, not the 6 to 7% of inflation that we've seen that's really done so much damage to the US economy. Now, I want to mention one other quick thing before we get to our guests, because this is something, you know, we're approaching the four-year anniversary of COVID uh, and the terrible pandemic that changed uh, so much in our country. And there was something, I don't normally watch this show called The View, uh, but somebody sent me the video of Dr. Phil on on the show. And some of you may have seen this video, it's gone viral. And Dr. Phil basically said to these airhead women on on that show, they're not very smart. They, he said, you know, one of the tragic things we did in response to COVID was shutting down the schools. We should have never done that. He said that really hurt our children, both emotionally in terms of their intellectual development. Um, and it was uh, really unnecessary because, as Dr. Phil said, um, we knew at the time that children were not really in danger of COVID. Older people were. People with respiratory problems were. People who were overweight were very much in danger, but children were not. Now you might pick one that the death rate from COVID of children was minuscule. More more kids get run over walking across the street than died of COVID. So there was never, never any positive ramification from shutting down the schools. Never. And yet, as Dr. Phil said, for as many as two years in some states, the schools were shut down. And he said, this has done real damage to our kids. And what shocked me about this 
was that Whoopi Goldberg and these other women pushed back on this. Oh, we were trying to save lives and we wanted to take care of the children and we didn't want the teachers to get sick and so on. And that's and and Dr. Phil said this nonsense, you know, and it was nonsense. As we enter the four-year anniversary of COVID, at least the liberals who shut down the schools and especially the teachers unions should be man enough uh, to basically say we were wrong. We were wrong to shut down our schools. We did great damage to our kids and never again. And what makes me nervous about this, uh, and you've got to watch the, you've got to watch the video, folks. If you get a chance, go on YouTube and watch this video of Dr. Phil versus these airhead women, because they are completely divorced from reality. And they say, oh, we're saving kids' lives. No, this wasn't about savings lives. It was basically kowtowing to the teachers' unions. Many of the teachers did to, didn't want to teach for money, many months on end. And I don't want to see this happen again. Never, never, never again should we let our um, government shut down our schools. They should never shut down our restaurants. They should never run out, shut down our businesses, our churches. And I'm nervous because they're going to try to do this again with COVID or the next time we have some kind of virus, they're going to they're going to hit the replay button and we're going to continue to do things that are unconstitutional, damaging our economy and damaging to our freedom. So let's not let that happen. Okay. Let's make sure as a nation, as citizens, that we never allow them to shut down our schools and our churches and our businesses again, because it was a catastrophically wrong uh, response to a virus. Uh, okay. I'm glad I got that off my chest. All right. We'll be right back, folks. I will be uh, right back with uh, Arthur Laffer, the great economist, to tell us the state of the economy. Stay tuned. Traffic jams tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. This is More Money with economist Steve Moore. Now, Steve Moore. Welcome back, folks. This is the More Money Show on WABC Talk Radio. Now I'm so proud and privileged to introduce my next guest, and that is uh, the best man in my wedding, my best friend in the world, and the best friend of taxpayers and the best friend of economic growth and prosperity. And of course, I'm talking about Arthur Laffer, who is among many, many other things, the uh, winner of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Arthur Laffer. Arthur, thanks for joining. Oh, it's my pleasure, Steve. Thank you. I love the title, More Money. Wow. Yeah, more. I like We're going to make title. more money. That, that, and you're, we're going to make more money. Job. We're going to spend more money. We're going to have more money. I mean, it's just a great line. What a terrific name! And the, well, uh, your the job. Only thing better would be if your name were Cryer. Then it would be Laugh or Cryer or something. I'm just. <laughs> so here's the thing: that uh, your job th this afternoon is to uh, explain to our listeners how we can make more money. So let's just start right with that. We've got a pretty booming stock market right now. We've got. The Magnificent Seven that have been on a tear. I have uh, told my listeners that uh, my um, ace investor, Ann Moore, who I think you know, bought a lot of in NVIDIA stock uh, 18 months ago. So we're feeling really good about things. So, as a bull market, what do you make of it? 
Well, I don't really, really think it's much of a bull market. I, I know it's in nominal terms it's up. I think it's the highest now it's ever been or right in that range. But yeah. if, if you take it with inflation into account, it's it's not as high as it was, let's say, in Good uh, point. 2021. Yeah. It really isn't. Uh, yep. It's been flat yep. there. This has been a, a lackluster period, except for these high tech, which are really love uh, low interest rates in the technology yeah. like NVIDIA. I mean, that's phenomenal. Right. Uh, but but uh, I don't think this is a beautiful economy by any means. The employment rate is very, very, very low. I know the unemployment rate is too, Steve, but prices are up since Biden came into office, what, by 18, 19 percent, something like that. That's and right. Inflation's much lower, but it's still rising. Prices are still rising. I mean, that's happening. And interest rates, while they're, you know, they're not as low as they were, are up a, up a little bit. And that does discourage people as well. So I'm not so, a huge yeah. fan of this economy. I'm just waiting for the election. Yeah, neither am I. And uh, I think that you're right. Uh, this is a point that we've made in uh, at the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Of course, Arthur is also, among other things, a co-founder of the committee. But we did the calculations. I think you've done them too, Arthur. And you're right that the gains uh, in the stock market adjusted for inflation were you know, five or six times greater in real terms under uh, Trump than they've been under Biden. So the t- the, exactly. if you're an investor, uh, Trump's policies have been much better for investors. Yes, that's that's very true. And Reagan, you can't believe how I mean when when Reagan's tax cut took effect, Steve, the the stock yeah. market was at seven seventy seven. That's in August of eighty two. I mean it just skyrocketed. The economy went I mean, you know, we need to have some growth periods like that, like they had in the go go sixties, like yep. we had in the in the eighties and, and there yep. were some I mean Trump did in the a 90s. Damn good job. Yeah. Well that's we so true. And one. even even a president that you liked, Bill Clinton, we had a pretty bullish market during Clinton's era, it was too. Great. He was a great president. In a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, yeah, a you know, you a guy, but a great president. <laughs> you know? Well, he did the welfare reform. He did the capital gains cut. He, he did a lot he of the, sure poli- the trade deals. Yep. Yeah. And he exempted all owner occupied homes from capital gains taxation. I mean, that's yeah. pretty a fantastic. So wh- when you look at you're close to Donald Trump. You talk to him often. Thank God you're one of his, uh, you know, uh, closest economic advisors, along with Larry Kudlow. So you, you think you, he's you got you're yeah, more than well, both of us. <laughs> well, you the three of us really have a good relationship with the president. And uh, so what what do you tell him right now? I, 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 and let me specifically ask you about something that our listeners ask me about all the time. They're concerned about the tariff that uh Trump is talking about. So what do you make of that? Uh, he's talking about two things, a, a, a tariff on China and then also an across the board 10 percent tariff. And I wonder what you think about that. Well, you know, l- let me if I can uh, d- describe my perception of Trump and not, it's not Trump. you got to okay. talk to him if you want the right one. But I think he understands very well that to threaten tariffs is, in fact, a way to bring these people to the negotiation table to get free trade. Oh, and that's I've true. I agree with that. That's true. Yeah, I think he does that. Uh, frankly, I, I did a piece in Vice uh, back in, uh, uh, I think, 2017 or something after a conversation with him. And, mm-hmm. you know, the only way you can ever bring them to the table is threaten them with yeah. removal of their of, of their ability to trade in the U.S. market. And by the way, can I just interrupt the, you for one second? Oh, because sure. I, there were so there were, you're, you're spot on. Correct. And, you know, we saw this firsthand where I'll just give you one example you know when mex he wanted mexico to help on the border to keep the get the 
passport or secure something Biden obviously has not done. And, you know, he went to the Mexican said, we, you know, you're going to have to help us on the border. And the Mexican government said, no, we're not going to do it. And so then Trump said, okay, well, then we're going to slap you with a 25% tariff. And guess what? The next day, guess what happened? Arthur? They said, okay, we'll help with the border. But that's right. That's exactly correct. And Mexico has more protectionism than we do. And, right. you know, you know, they have, a, they, you know, we, they, they are granted the privilege of selling their goods in our markets. And there's nothing wrong with Trump uh, negotiating with them over tariffs to reduce and get free trade and have them act like a civilized nation in this world community. There's nothing wrong with that. And I support him 100 percent on that level. Good. So uh, what about the tariff on China? Well, China, I think it's the same thing in this world, Steve, when we look at 50, 20 70 years from now, China is going to be here as a country, and so are we. We need to learn to live with China, and to living with China needs – we need to have free trade with China. And what Trump needs to do is make sure that brings them to the table, and I can't think of anything that would bring mm-hmm. China to the table to negotiate a good trade agreement than threatening tariffs that he is doing. Now, it's not my style. I, I don't do it. I'm not a good negotiator. But God knows Trump is, is. a great negotiator. He sure is. I'm not. <laughs> he is. So therefore, I'm, right. I'm, I'm saying that if he's going to use his skills as a negotiator mm-hmm. to bring them to the table to get freer trade and to get money with them, no one wants a world war. No one wants fighting and you know, all that stuff. And Trump is a peace lover and Trump is a free trader in my mind. And he gets that, that by threatening the other. And yeah. then just the way Reagan did with yeah. strength, you know, yeah. it's peace yeah. through strength. Yes. And he did it with the uh, with the Europeans. Uh, with NATO and, and sure other did. things. I mean, he's he's a master negotiator. I couldn't agree more with that. By he the way, really that's Arthur Laffer. I don't understand. I don't understand it because, you know, I don't I, I don't have that skill. And so when you see someone with a skill that you don't have, it's just amazing to see how it works. <laughs> so uh, let, uh, in the in the uh, by the way, this is Arthur Laffer, the, the extraordinary e- economist. Um, so you were telling me the other day uh when we talked that when we were talking about the labor force and the jobs numbers, and you were making a case about the fact that a lot of these so-called jobs are being filled by illegal immigrants and that therefore for native Americans, the job situation is not nearly as good as it appears. Yeah. Well, it's not as good as it appears historically. When you add 8 million new people to the country, other than born and raised in natural cohorts, and 4 million of those people have jobs, that is not a great thing to do. Now, those 4 million jobs are registered as increases in the number of jobs in the U.S., even though it's with a group of people that never was in the U.S., they came in and did that. So what I would do to make it comparable is I would subtract mm-hmm. that 4 million jobs from the jobs numbers. And if you look at that, it's one lousy job market. This mm-hmm. guy has not created no jobs for the cohort group that existed. Now, imagine if we uh, if we annexed China, we would have how many millions and billions of jobs created? No, that's not <laughs> annexing a country is not the creation of new jobs. These and we're sort of annexing, here, and yeah, yeah. now they have jobs, but it's not new yeah. jobs. So, uh, one other thing uh, that I wanted to ask you about is tax policy. Uh, you had a big hand, obviously, in the 2017 tax cut with Larry Kudlow, uh, which. As I look you, at it, was a you, very and you, don't yeah. forget you. <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. Well, it, the results were pretty positive, very positive, I would say. And Amazing. those are set; those are set to expire starting next year. Um, you know, 
Trump well, not, wants not to make them, them permanent. The, the, yeah, the tax cut, many the of tax them. rate cut is, is permanent. You know, Thank we're going to have the income tax go from 37 to 39, 6. And the one that really bugs the hell out of me, Steve, is the is the death tax. That's the one that's yes. going to bounce bounce right back up and that we should do something. And by the way, we get, we have to have Kevin Hassett mentioned in our talk conversation here because he was He's really very, guy. very instrumental, especially in the he corporate stuff side and the creation of jobs. You know, all that stuff that that you talk about and Larry talks about, you know, of, of increasing real wages, median wages. I think you said it was six thousand Dollars, yes, six uh, increase in the six thousand. Yeah, it, yeah. And by the way, it's it's negative dollars. Those are real yeah, dollars. And it, yeah, yeah. And inflation. it's negative. Tw- it's negative twenty five hundred under Biden. Did you know that? Yeah, and and that Kevin Hesitary there. I think that just tells you just flat out how wonderful that tax cuts and jobs act was. Plus, tax revenues went up, not down. In spite so of the tax the, cuts, state yeah, federal revenue. I know went they up did a lot. Yeah, and the rich paid more, right? Well, I, I like the rich uh, getting good jobs and getting good incomes, and I don't mind them paying more as long as they earn more. And same thing with any group of Americans. I yeah. love all Americans. Well, there's a very, very famous curve that describes this relationship called the Laffer curve, and and you know oh we we've seen that right. It worked. It worked for their Kennedy. It worked for Reagan. It worked for. Uh, Trump and I think you also were the chief economist for Calvin Coolidge, weren't you? Back in nineteen, 19- I was, I was, I was. How did you know that? <laughs> by the way, it works for the other guys too. It works for the in the negative direction for these other people too. They yeah. lose revenues when they raise taxes. Oh, Roosevelt and uh, and Hoover, yeah, right? There you go. Yeah, Hoover. So, <laughs> well, we have one one minute left. What is your last? Uh, what is your number one recommendation to Donald Trump in terms of reviving this economy? Oh, I don't know. But what I would like to recommend to Americans is look at the look at the property tax. The property yep. tax is a killer in this country, and it has destroyed many cities, many regions, et cetera. The property tax, and if there's any way that people can get onto a board of controlling property taxes, they'll win every election, just like they did in Prop 13 in California. Yep. And I, I suggested to Trump that he may want to do something like a, 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 a grant, a, a block grant to states to control their property taxes. I thought that might be a good winner for him politically and economically. Yeah, well, I live in Maryland and we pay really high property taxes. So I love, love that idea. And most of our audience is in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area where property taxes are just killing homeowners. So fantastic idea, Arthur. And renters too, and renters too. Yeah, it affects everybody. Retirees, it just destroys retirees. Um, that's Arthur Laffer, one of the greatest economists in the country. And uh, thank you so much, Arthur, for taking some time off this afternoon to join thank us. You, and we'll Steve. be right back. And get me this some is... more money, Steve. Thank you. <laughs> more money. This is the More Money Show on WABC. It's More Money with leading economist Steve Moore. Now, here's your host, Steve Moore. Welcome back, folks. This is the More Money Show on this Saturday afternoon. I hope everyone is having a wonderful weekend. Uh, My next guest is a good friend and an ally of good economic common sense, and that is my friend Steve Del Bianco, who is the CEO of a group called NetChoice. And Steve is trying to make sure that the government does not overregulate uh, this incredible technology industry that we have. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for joining this afternoon. Hey, Steve, thanks for having me on. And you called it exactly right. Uh, it, it seems as if uh, the favorite whipping boy of anyone who doesn't feel like the way online 
communications works wants to yep. beat up on the tech companies. Facebook, think about uh, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, now known as X. And all mm-hmm. of those are among the member companies of NetChoice. We're a trade association whose mission is pretty simple. We're trying to make the internet safe for free enterprise and free expression. Yep. And so uh, tell us about this. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal, and that's what uh, what uh, triggered me to uh, to try to get in touch with you, that I thought was an excellent editorial, basically calling out the states of Texas and Florida for basically uh, a lawsuit against um, some of the high tech companies. Uh, and I find it to be a real violation of free speech rights. Uh, but what say you? I think, I think you hit it right. Uh, remember, the, the journal editorial board, not just an article, but the journal editorial board right. still gets it right almost all of the time. And this is even after Steve Moore left writing for the journal. <laughs> so on, on the day of the Supreme Court oral argument, which is February 26th, in the two net choice cases, this is where NetChoice had sued Florida and Texas over laws they enacted in 2021, fresh off of the January 6th experience. And these laws were specifically aimed to punish Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for um, suppressing President Trump uh, halfway through the afternoon of the January 6th riots. And sure enough, these laws were designed to punish by saying that Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube were not allowed anymore to make their own decisions on which content they would allow and which content they would actually take down proactively on their own. And I got involved in this, Steve, in 2021, shortly after the laws were introduced. I testified in Florida and I testified in Texas. I provided legal memos showing that the First Amendment plainly prohibits the state from imposing controls, government controls on private speech. And as you well know, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube are private companies. I said to the uh, chairman of the committee in both states, I said, Mr. Chairman, could you enact a law here to force the local newspaper to carry right. your op-ed? <laughs> right. And the answer was, well, of course not. And I said, well, well, Mr. Chairman, what makes you think you can force Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to carry content they don't want to carry? No answer, so, yeah. no answer, no legal standing yeah. at all. But they decided to enact the laws anyway because they were important messaging bills to President Trump's supporters. So let me just back up because this is such an important issue, folks. And look, I know a lot of my listeners, they may not like the politics of Google or Amazon or Facebook. And oftentimes I don't like their politics, Steve, but this still is the last time I checked a free country. And it is true, by the way, that um, they built it, right? They built these incredible companies, whether you like Google's politics or Amazon, they built them, you know, and uh, and they own it. and. That's one point that this is their their platforms. And so I don't want the government regulating their platforms that they built with their money. But second of all, you make the the important point about freedom of speech, the First Amendment. And, you know, I'm appalled, Steve, at how many of my some of my friends on the right don't even understand what the First Amendment is. The First Amendment doesn't um, it, it, it applies to government. The government is the only one who can restrict your speech. And I don't think a lot of, uh, you know, if I, if I, as you said, if I, I have a hotline I put out every morning, if I say, I don't want to have Steve Del Bianco on my platform, I can, you know, you don't have a right to sue me. Right. So nobody understands that the first amendment right is a, pr- a protection against exactly what, uh, 
exactly the opposite of what uh, the Texas and the Florida uh, governments are trying to do. You have it exactly right, Steve. I mean, the First Amendment is not that difficult to read. It says, quote, Congress shall make no law infringing right. on the freedom of expression. Uh, and I think, Congress by the way, stop the right there. Government. Stop. Hold on. Steve, stop. Steve, stop right there. Say it again. Congress shall Con- make no law infringing on the freedom of expression, freedom of the press. And the first word there is Congress, right? It doesn't say Steve Moore can't restrict your freedom of speech. And so this is a problem that I have. And I think another point, and you've made this point very well, Steve, is if the government is going to, uh, is the government going to regulate what's on that platform? I mean, that that to me is a, a violation of freedom of speech. Exactly what we argued in the net choice lawsuits, Steve. And the Supreme Court argued for four hours on Monday with advocates uh-huh. for Florida and for Texas, with, uh, with net choices attorneys. And through it all, I feel very good about how this is going to end up. I am confident Great. they will uphold the injunctions that we obtained to stop Texas and Florida from enforcing those laws. But to, brought up, to, to go back to what you said a little bit earlier, uh, as a fellow conservative, I think you're going to have to admit that conservatives are killing it on social media. We are the top Facebook. The top Facebook yes. pages are are Breitbart, uh, the the top ten of all of the shared sites on Facebook, Twitter, and mm-hmm. YouTube are conservatives. Think about what Elon Musk has done with Twitter, now known as X. He's exercised mm-hmm. the owner's prerogative of deciding how he wants to moderate content, and all of these point to the fact that conservatives. We can share our news and views on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube a lot better than we can share it on the Washington Post and New York Times. That is for sure. And that's, yeah, when I, when I first came to Washington in the mid 1980s, you know, you wanted to have your voice heard. You got on NBC, ABC, CBS, or the New York Times, and they really totally dominated. They almost had a kind of monopoly on news and information. And now you've got literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands not millions of sources to get information out, thanks in no small part to the technology revolution. And you made a really important point that I, I bet a lot of my listeners don't realize this, but the those of us who are on the right and believe in free markets and freedom, we have used these platforms almost more effectively than the left has. We sure have. We sure have. And so you can imagine if Texas and Florida can force us to carry content we don't want to carry. Well, then the other 48 states and a lot of blue states among them could force us to take down content that you and I want them to carry. This is not going to end well for conservatives. It will not. 77 amicus briefs came in to support the net choice lawsuit. Wow. 77 by 273 conservative groups. Wow. And look, conservatives get it. We want to keep the government on their side of the wall and allow on the private side of the wall all of us to carry the content that we think is appropriate for our audiences, for our advertisers. They kept, they kept, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, if you don't like their content, them, go, go, go to Twitter, go to X. Yeah. Go I was going to say, if you don't, yeah, if you don't like the content, Turn it off, right? <laughs> you know, no, there's no nobody putting a gun to your head. Now, I, we've only got two or two or three minutes left, Steve. And something that happened just this week that has a lot of my listeners really angry is this AI issue with respect to Google and Google um, basically having a lot of crazy stuff 
on on there that is offensive to people. Uh, and, and it seems like misinformation. Now, the Google president uh, just in the last couple of days has said we're going to correct this problem. But can you can you comment on this? Yeah. So Google's AI engine is a privately held asset that they allow all of us to use. And that's how we can experiment with ways to fool the algorithm to generating content. And when we do that, sometimes that content will be offensive to the left and sometimes it'll be offensive to the right. And I think mm-hmm. that Google CEO said it right this morning. He said, we're going to work harder than ever to try to ensure that we try, try to ensure that we don't alienate and upset either end of the political spectrum. Good. What I have to good. say is thank you for trying, but good luck with that. It is almost impossible to navigate the current minefield where each side is looking for something to be offended about. Uh, Google, though, has got a lot of smart engineers, and I think they'll figure it out. So you think, do you think they'll be able to resolve? You don't think they'll be able to resolve this in a way that will make anybody happy. Uh, I mean, I think that what, what people are concerned about is that Google is trying to sort of brainwash people and, and direct them to information that in some cases might not be accurate or uh, that is left-leaning. And that, that's, the, that's what the allegation is. Right. And I, I don't think there's anything to that. I've been working with Google's AI engine since it came out over a year ago. And it's all in the question. When I pose a prompt with very little indication of what I'm looking for, the prompt quickly checks everything that it's read and learned, and the LLM comes back with an answer. And the answer will often include both sides, both sides yeah. of the issue and try not to be judgmental. But if I said, give me an explanation, give me a blog about a certain yeah. point of view, then those large language models do a much better job of making an argument. You don't go so, to a large yeah. language model to do research. You go there to generate uh, text, images, graphics, yep. and and uh, things that will help you in your preparation of your own con- conser- uh, creative material. Thanks, uh, Steve. Well put. Uh, you are a champion of uh, freedom and and, uh, and liberty, and I appreciate what Je- uh, what Nut Choice does. Uh, folks, we'll be right back. This is the More Money Show on WABC. And Bob and Chris, you know, when it comes to financial planning and investing, and you take our collective 75 years, we know that a lot of you can be your worst enemy when it comes to making financial decisions. So I thought we could just talk about some of the bigger mistakes we make when we get in our own way and we're our worst enemy when it comes to making good, sound decisions when it comes to your money. You know, I'll tell you guys, one of the, one of the th- awful truths is that, uh, you know, the only thing guaranteed in life is death and taxes. And I, I remember doing my own personal wealth projection you know, way back as a rookie broker in my days at Mother Merrill. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, my tax bracket's going to be a lot lower, you know, once I retire. Um, but you never thought about, you know, having millions of dollars in your 401k that you have to pay tax on, right? That would push you into a higher marginal bracket. Uh, but, you know, and you just don't know what tax bracket's going to be. My goodness, when I started, you know, we had a 90% marginal tax rate at one time. Yeah. You know, talk about the uh, the federal government confiscating your, your hard-earned income. But uh, so you, you always have to deal with what you know as opposed to pretending that you can predict the future when it comes to inflation or taxes, savings, or spend. Well, I think it goes back to our favorite adage, right? Money saved in taxes is just as great as any money you can make in your investments. And I think that's where most of us spend the least amount of time thinking about, right? We know annuities love to be sold talking about like 
income for life, guaranteed 10% return, which we know is not real. But when you start taking that money, you're paying it at the highest tax bracket, right? So it's extremely tax inefficient, yet most of us don't take the time to really look at what actually is in our pocket after the tax man has got a hold of your gains and your income and your dividends. I heard about somebody once say that your individual retirement account is actually a joint account and the joint partner is the U.S. government because <laughs> you could basically assume they're going to take 40% to half over time. Well, it goes back to what I was saying earlier on the show, like last year, a muni portfolio returned 5%. If you live in New York or any other states that have huge taxes or you're just in a high marginal bracket, that's like you getting 7% on a equivalent pre-tax basis, right? In an investment that pays income and matures. So it's just so important to understand those tax implications because, again, maybe you get a high return on something, but if you're paying a ton in taxes on it, it might be a very low return after the tax man gets their way with you. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And it's um, and your money compounds much faster when you're paying less to the IRS or the state of New York and New Jersey or, or Illinois. So it's it's really critical to make sure you maintain you know a low, a low tax profile. Um, one of my buddies from home, Rai, saw you on um, one of the TV shows the other day, and he said, oh my goodness, Bob, I'm sitting here thinking I got 5% return on my cash at the local bank, and after listening to Ryan, I'm not making anything after taxes and inflation. So <laughs> you got a you got a big fat check coming your way for our municipal bond portfolio because it makes so much sense, you know, after listening to what you keep as opposed to what coupon is or what the interest rate is. And it's simple math, right? If you're getting 5%, but inflation's 3%, you're down to 2% and you still have to pay taxes on that, you're down to closer to maybe a 1% return. When you factor in taxes and inflation, that money market fund of 5% doesn't sound so great anymore. And yes, on a treasury money market fund, you do pay federal tax, by the way. It's a lot of money. Well, you know, I tell you what, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but we have a presidential election coming up in November and and I am telling you, I am just dreading it because, you know, four years ago, every single client was trying to game the election. Well, if this side gets in, the market will do X. The other side gets in, the market will do Y. Let's put money in cash and time this. Um, you can't predict the outcome of an election, nor can you predict what the outcome is going to be on the outcome that you predict. So it's just it's, it's amazing how much volatility we're going to experience between now and Election Day. And I guarantee you one thing, the day after the election, all the noise will turn off and you'll start hearing about something else. Well, it certainly happened last time. And I had a bunch of clients uh, call me prior to the election to say, if so-and-so gets in, I want to get out. And uh, <laughs> you, know what, you know what happened the very next day after the election? Market went straight up last time. Yeah. Whether you love Joe Biden or don't love Joe Biden, the market did go straight up after he was elected. And I think it was just the certainty that you knew you had a president that was more important and if his policies were good or bad, I mean, you've said this before, and I think there's another Warren Buffett quote, we'll use the Oracle of Omaha today, is it's it's about a beauty contest, right? It's not about what you think is beauty. It's about what the actual judge thinks beauty is. So you have no idea how markets are going to react to any sort of data ahead of time. So it's not worth trying to figure that out. More important to figure out what your goals are. It's not about a cataclysmic event affecting your portfolio or an all or none proposition. It doesn't work that way. Well, I think as an investor, you should always be happy. You should be happy when the market's going down because then you can invest when the market's low. And you should be happy when the market's up because you're making money. Either way, the outcome's always going to be better. I think that really comes down, and I'm a basic guy, right? So I look at things from a very- We know, Bob. Yes. Uh, you know, just very fundamental thinker. And who ends up running these big companies? 
right? Versus who goes into politics. And it's, you know, these really bright people that, you know, get paid huge money to be in the C-suite. They only get paid huge money if the earnings go up. So, you know, they're watching the election. They don't care who gets in. They just want to see, okay, what do I have to do now to get around whatever they're going to pass? And it's amazing, right? These companies, they continue to grow, right? You look at the earnings that uh, we're having right now. The earnings that this country generates are the largest in history. They're estimated to be larger next year and larger the following year. And the last I looked, guys, stocks are the slaves of earning power. And so, you know, they're watching the election just to see what they have to do to keep growing the company so your stocks will go up. Well, you know, Ryan, as the uh, president of our firm, I'm really kind of curious to see who you're going to vote for. (laughs) <laughs> never count me out and never bet against American business, I think is, is probably a good adage there. Um, but I think right now, you know, what's really important too, and we talked about this a lot, is just you've got to really stick to your knitting right now, right? Because there is greed in the air. The reason Bitcoin's over 60,000, there's a lot of liquidity out there and there's a lot of seduction to put your money in one place like AI or growth stocks or tech stocks. But we know everything's cyclical. And if you're building your portfolio for retirement, you can't get seduced into the greed of the moment. It's the worst thing you can do for your retirement plan. You've got to stick to your discipline. And if you're getting close to retirement, you have to think about income. Income's way more consistent. It's not predicated on if NVIDIA's earnings are going to be amazing next quarter or not. So you really got to start to transition your portfolio as you're getting closer to living off your portfolio, going from that wealth accumulation to what we call that wealth distribution stage. And I can tell you with all the portfolios we look at, most of you haven't made that change and it's going to come back to bite you in the you-know-what later on if you don't make those adjustments proactively. Well, I think you don't want to be in a competition, right? It's You, know, you don't need to beat the market. The market has generated, all financial markets have generated you know, a very generous return, enough return for everyone to achieve their goals. And it just blows my mind. And as I told you guys this week, I got an email from our friends at home. I used to belong my country club, just pleaded to financial fraud. Because, you know, he was involved in a $515 million scam. And, you know, why do people give money to these people? They promise them 10 to 14% returns. And you hear 10% in a 4% market, you got, you know, you just, you're greedy, you know? So it's just, it's just a shame that people fall for these things. It makes it harder for everybody, but you don't have to reach for return. Just that's always the one thing you got to remember, accept the returns. If you saved over a million dollars for your retirement, Myself and Bob and our team at Payne Capital will run for you our total financial master plan, and we'll do that with no obligation or cost. It's a full holistic review. We literally look at everything. There's not a firm out there that will do this work up front. We go as far as building you, your own personalized financial portal. We give you a bird's eye view of your entire financial life, and we'll hone in on every financial issue you need to address today, whether it's that income plan for retirement. How do you take Social Security? There's a lot of ways to take it, but one run right way for you how do you draw from your portfolio the most tax-efficient way? We'll give you a full income plan, factor in inflation, so you don't run out of money. We're going to look at diversification. Markets have been all over the place, up and down. Has your portfolio been extremely volatile? Or have you been sitting in cash? Paralysis by analysis. Can't figure out what to do. We'll put together a full diversified investment game plan, show you how to grow your wealth, tie it to your goals, but most importantly, protect it over the rest of your life, and we're going to look at fees and taxes. Wall Street loves to sell you high cost, tax inefficient products, whether it's an annuity, mutual fund, insurance product, brokerage product. We're going to go through every investment you have, deep dive. We're going to show you how to reduce all the internal cost and optimize your portfolio for taxes. It's now what you make, 
It's what you take. You'll get our full tax playbook. We literally have four slots left. If you saved over a million dollars for your retirement, all you need to do is call or text at 844-752-6692. That's 844-752-6692. If you call or text us right now at 844-752-6692, that's 844-PLAN-NYC, 844-PLAN-NYC.